0: Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Nick Baltes and I, Niels Kastroblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Nick, it is wonderful to be back with you this week. It's been a little while. How have you been? It's been indeed a little while.
1: Um, I think last time was when we had the group session just before um, before, uh, the new year. Um, It's been a very busy start of the year, I should say. Um, You know, part of that is... uh, a lot of good amount of client activity. There was a bit of travel, uh, you know, this EQD conference in Barcelona. It's been it's been well so far so good. Uh, how about you?
0: Yes, no, completely the same. This is my busy travel time, so uh, I I can uh, uh, attest to the the busyness. But it's also been an interesting time in the markets. I'm sure we'll we'll come to that. Now we have a pretty full plate a very solid lineup with a few different topics, ranging from the state of the CTA industry to some hard-hitting research papers. We also have a recent article from risk.net, and if we can get to it, we wanted to also to discuss a little bit about alternative markets, including Chinese markets, and of course, we also have a question that we're going to be launching out within a few minutes. So quite a lot for us to be tackling today. Um, But before we get to that, I'm always curious, in between our conversations, besides the topics we're going to be talking about today, what else has been kind of top of mind or been on your radar uh, since we last spoke? So, since we last spoke, so you know, I guess the start of the year uh, has, been, um,
1: has been a period since we haven't spoken. And I think what we have seen year to date, uh, at least in my, in my world, you know, we have seen some of the non-trend components that we discussed, uh, I think, a couple of months ago with um, with Alan, uh, performing quite strongly. Uh, I think some cross-sectional reversion dynamics and carry dynamics helping out quite substantially. Um, and we see significant interest from our client base in in these type of profiles. Um, I think there is still a bit of um, uncertainty in the market. Debate. Obviously, the, you know, the equity market hitting one all-time high following another all-time high and some sort of cuts being already, uh, quote-unquote, priced in uh, until the end of the year I think I see some sort of uncertainty as to where we're where we're heading um I think the risk.net article you mentioned has some good points. gonna leave that for when we're gonna discuss about that um but I should say relatively busy in this regard um but yes the good feedback about the non-trending components helping uh a trend following program is the one that has you know, kept me quite busy with uh, with clients I must say
0: sounds exciting sounds good now before we move on I I think in terms of top of mind, I couldn't help noticing uh, something that happened yesterday. So we're recording on Friday, but yesterday, the Nikkei 225 index broke its long-term record uh, from the old Japanese bubble back from December 29th, 1989. So, essentially, a 35-year drawdown has come to an end. Um, That is, of course, good news for uh, Japanese investors, but Wow, it certainly our drawdown length in the trend falling space pales when you see a thirty five year drawdown coming to an end.
1: You know, you know. Um, actually, let me tell you, like a it's a bit of an anecdote. Um, about four four five years ago, um, we we started preparing a a report for our clients uh that discusses how we think about defensive solutions right um how can we put together a portfolio of systematic strategies to achieve a specific defensive profile whether that will help you in a flash correction a longer-term correction and so on and so forth okay and we made this kind of supposition that investors thinks investors think of drawdowns i guess in two big clusters or groups you have the sharp corrections that are much more event-driven and you have those that are a bit more structural um, or i guess longer term more sustained drawdowns, but even if that is the perception we have about drawdowns, the way they actually develop are, you know, it is a bit idiosyncratic. Drawdown by drawdown. So then we set ourselves a task, can we use a data-driven process to separate drawdowns into those two kind of clusters? Um, and no matter how much we tried, unless we found a way to tackle the corner solutions, you no, know, we would fail. Right? Because every single drawdown has its own features. And one of those that we actually put in the appendix of the report was like, well, look into Japan. You cannot make a case that it has been in drawdown for like 30 years because how do you design a portfolio that performs over those 30 years? So you have to look into a kind of a micro scale at some point. So yesterday, you know, my colleague that we, that we worked on this paper uh, back, in, back in 2020 kind of sent me the picture from, from Bloomberg saying, listen, whatever we had in this appendix no longer is no longer the case. So there you are.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's funny. It's nice to uh, dig out some of these old, uh, uh, old stuff. Now, before we get into our usual topics and questions, uh, let me just say that from a trend-following perspective, uh, as of uh, Thursday evening, so far so good for the month of February, so far so good for the year 2024. Strong trends across a wide range of markets and sectors, uh, perhaps with a few standout sectors such as equities, soft commodities, as well as the grains. And possibly a couple of standout markets like the net gas cousins. When it comes to fixed income, I think from an industry point of view, it all depends on lookback period. Because if you had a relatively medium to short one, you may have flipped your positions in Q4. If you have a longer one, you may still have a little bit of short exposure. That's going to make a difference so far this year. My own trend barometer finished yesterday at 39, which doesn't really reflect the performance of long-term strategies. It's not quite as strong as, as you would expect. But, however, it is more in line with the shorter-term strategies, which, of course, is not surprising, because actually in that algorithm that calculates the trend barometer, we're only using about a month's worth of uh, look back for some of the... Uh, Indicators, so it kind of makes sense, anyways. As of uh last night, or maybe the Wednesday night, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, the beta 50 index up 3.46 for February, up four and a half for uh, the year. Sockgen CTA up four uh, percent in February, up five percent in the uh, for the year uh in trend up strong 5% in Mar- in February and up 6 and a quarter in uh 2024 and the short term traders index much more muted up 1% this month and up only 16 basis points so far this year MSCI World Index up about 4% as of last night up 5% for the year world government bonds down 1.2% so far this month and the S&P 500 total return index is up 5%. So far in February, up almost 7% so far this year. All right, with that out of the way, let's jump into a question that came in from Oliver. Oliver. Uh, It's a bit of a technical question, so I'm really glad that I have you on the show. Oliver writes, hope uh, you're well. Always greatly enjoying TTU. Thanks very much, Oliver. This might be a more technical question, perhaps for Rob or Nick. Does it make sense for investors to use factor regression to evaluate managed futures? If so, which factor model do you recommend? For example, it seems that the Fung or whatever the name is, seven-factor model is a risk factor model commonly used to evaluate hedge funds' performance. So that's the question. I'm not sure. I think I butchered. I butchered the name of that factor model, but I'm sure you know what what it is. Yeah, that's the that's the and Hsieh model, the seven-factor
1: model. Um, you know, two 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 academics that came up beginning of twenty of two thousands um, with um, with a factor model to explain hedge fund returns. Um, but they were specifically focusing on trend followers. So the factors they came along with, uh, setting aside some of the more kind of classical ones, namely equity, bond, credit, and a size premium in the equity markets. So these are like the four more traditional ones in some respect. Um, Then they put another three, four factors uh, that would capture trend following performance, but this was done using the loopback straddles. So this whole literature that talks about trend-following signals following a delta of a look-back straddle really started from those academic papers because they came up with those, um, with those factors in commodities rates and so on and so forth with a look-back straddle uh, profile that would eventually explain what CTAs were kind of doing, right? So they somehow connected the CTA performance, the trend-following performance, with a look-back straddle. Um, so that's the model, right? So now the question is, you know, would we use such a model to, uh, to decompose managed features returns. I guess the question uh, can be asked in a slightly different way. Um, are we looking to attribute performance into specific profiles or are we looking to identify where risk in our portfolio lies? And I think those two questions are not necessarily the same unless we believe that any risk that we identify is rewarded or any rewarded exposure has an underlying risk um, kind of embedded. Um, because that particular model partly suggested that yes, there are some risks like equity risk or duration risk or credit risk or possibly small cap bias. But then the other factors that were simply look back straddles, in some respect, they were kind of simpler variations of a trend following strategy across in every asset class, and therefore it's no surprise that they would capture the performance of those managed futures funds. Now, the point is, should we look into the alpha and suggest that they don't bring value well, we can debate as to whether they bring value or not, because that alpha is not necessarily testament to their outperformance. performance. It is simply a way to identify which are the attributions of their performance across following trend-following programs, across uh, markets, right, and asset classes. Like a different way of looking into it, I think AQR did something like that, possibly like 10 years ago. You can take every asset class, say commodities, equities, rates, and effects. You can build a shorter, medium-term, and long-term momentum And now suddenly you have 12 factors, right? But are these really the factors that if you end up regressing on a CTA will tell you that there's no alpha? Or possibly you'll do a bit of a performance attribution of, hey, this particular CTA is capturing more like medium-term equities and short-term rates, for instance, right? So I I would look into that more as an explanation of, in some respect, you know, using statistical uh, measures, uh, explanation of performance, return attribution, rather than necessarily, oh, this fund is exposed on X, Y, Z, and therefore there is no alpha left, right? I think that's always the danger with risk models, that somehow you end up adding more factors seemingly to explain the returns, but it's not necessarily the case that picking up those return profiles, uh, the fund is not performing, right? So I think the truth is somewhere in the middle here. But that, that I think that's the whole question, right?
0: So... So let me do a little bit of a follow-up here in my non-academic uh, world. Um, and I don't mean to be disrespectful to uh, to Oliver here asking this question, but sometimes when I listen to these things and and I think about trend following and I think about kind of the simplicity that we want to kind of um, instill uh, in the way we design models uh, as much as we can and so on and so forth, I, I fear that sometimes there's a risk that... that all of these fancy models to try and analyze what we do almost misses the point. It becomes too academic, too theoretical to really be valuable, meaning I'm not sure who would use this type of factor model to make any decision about whether they should allocate to a manager or not. Maybe I'm missing the point. I mean, that's definitely possible, but I... I, I've, and maybe it's more relevant for some strategies, but when it comes to trend following, I, I sometimes feel that we're trying to do things in order to come to a decision about it that is way too complicated compared to what the underlying strategy is trying to do. Does, how does that sound to a professor like yourself?
1: I mean, they're raising the bar now. Um, look, I think, I think in, in all fairness... Uh, having some form of a risk model in mind, just to at least be cognizant of what are the risks underlying. If you do like manager selection, for instance, I think it's prudent. Um, Now, beyond that, a model like this, which is just a linear regression model with a few factors, might have some value when it comes to identifying different CTAs with seemingly similar profiles, getting the return from different streams and therefore making sense to put them together. I mean, that could be a way of, of me kind of digging through a higher level of correlation that simply comes from different sources of, um, of performance, right? And, and, and therefore breaking that down from a top level into the statistically speaking constituents. That could be some value in it. Um, but I would say from an academic standpoint, it all started 20 years back primarily to try and understand the profile rather than necessarily, how should I say, like no, reduce the quote unquote the alpha, right? It's more of, uh, that's why I feel it's more of a performance attribution model
0: Okay, that's, that's fair.
1: That's, that's my view.
0: Yeah, no, appreciate it very much, and appreciate the the question from Oliver, of course. All right, let's dive into something that's uh, kind of completely different, not something we never really talk about, um, but our good friend of the show, uh, Linus Nielsen over at Nielsen Hedge, uh, which, by the way, provides wonderful data for those who are interested in the Uh, see the hedge fund world, and of course, uh, Rich and I use uh, his database when we write our monthly uh, trend-following report, which people can find on the Top Traders Unblocked website. But in any event, there was an article uh, on Linus's um, blog post of um, the state of the industry was the name of it, or the state of the CTA industry, where he's essentially pulling some data from the uh, regulatory bodies, the NFA in particular, that uh, essentially tracks the number of uh, participants in the industry, whether it's firms, different types of firms, whether it's associates I.e people in the industry. So instead of me talking about this, Nick, um, I wanted to ask whether you uh, what you thought about it we can share some of the 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 trends, pardon the pond uh, in the uh, from, from the data that he uh, showed. I broadly speaking, um, you know, what is reported
1: in this uh, in this short note is um, how the number of participants has changed since May 2021. So we're talking about a three-year change. Uh, it reports annual increases or declines. Uh, broadly across the spectrum, uh, there's a decline of participants in this regard. And if you focus on the CTA space that um, I guess this show is more uh, focused on, there's a 30% annual decline on the number of CTAs, right? So this is not assets that are managed, it is rather the managers themselves. To be frank, I wasn't hugely surprised by, by that. Um, not that I had any specific prior, but you know, having seen at least how the industry has been evolving, there's a good amount of consolidation, or if you like, there's this heavily skewed distribution of, I believe, and I think you have more information on this one than I, what I have, but I think it's, it's much more skewed towards a few managers that manage possibly 80% of the total assets. Um, so it might reflect some attempts that didn't play out uh, and the reality is, unless you've been in 2022, um, it has been quite a tough period. At the same time, last year wasn't a great year either. Is that correlated with that drop? Not clear to me, um, but this is certainly a, an interesting statistic to look at. And by the way, across the database, um, you know, including introducing brokers that I see here or um, associates that, you know, to your point, everything is kind of in a, in a, in a decline. Give or take, I think out of all reported managers, uh, or if you like participants in this regard under the NFA, uh, there's a 3 percent annual decline. That's that's what this short report says. What's
0: your take on it? <laughs> well, I, I guess like you, I'm I'm not necessarily surprised that there is a decline uh, per se. Well, I guess what I'm surprised about is that there was one category that had a small increase, and that was the uh, the brokers the FCMs, there's actually a small increase. You would think that that's also an industry that is uh, getting tougher and tougher. Um, To put some number on this for the people listening, um, back in 2021, summer 2021, it looks like there was around 1,360, 70 uh, CTAs uh, registered. Now we are down to around 1,250. So that is definitely a significant drop. In terms of commodity pool operators, uh, who are people who are associated usually with the fund vehicles um, themselves, uh, we see a drop from around 1260, uh, so more or less the same, down to around 1200 uh, around this uh, time. And then in terms of total number of people or associates uh, in the industry registered with the NFA, it stands around 40,000 now. Anyway, next topic we're going to be talking about is an article that came in uh, a, a paper, or actually it was online, risk.net, um, uh, written by uh, Faye Kilburn. I saw the title a few days ago, and the title was Trend Following Struggles to Return to Vogue. And they went on to say Macro Outlook for Trend Appears to be Favorable, but 2023 Performance Flop Give Would-Be Investors Pause for Thought. And... Um, and so at first glance, I have to say, ooh, I didn't really like that uh, article. And then uh, once I got a hold of it, uh, I uh, I started reading it. And it turns out that quite a few of our friends in the industry, people from Alpha Simplex, Aspect, and even to my surprise, the company I work for, Don Capital Management, is also in this paper. And they also cite some research from Man Group. So, anyways, why don't you share your thoughts on, on the on the topic uh, and maybe explain what the topic is? Because I actually think the the, t- the title was a little bit misleading. That's why I kind of went in one direction initially. But but the topic itself is a little bit different once you dive into it. I think the, the title is a bit more catchy
1: in some respect. Um, but the article itself is more about what happened last year, how do we observe... Um, I guess 2023 and 2024, and how trend following has a place in, in institutional portfolios on the back end of this outlook, uh, and whether 2023 performance, uh, completely opposite 2022, or if you like, not as amazing as 2022, has any uh, any effects in investor demand, right? But I, I don't necessarily think that it's about a struggle. I think it's more about of a description of the market in the in the present moment. So. I mean, the the article starts with a with an interesting, um, I guess, observation. That being that for quite some time now, um, using some form of risk indicators, uh, they quote the clear bridge Recession Risk Dashboard. Um, these are twelve indicators, um, and half of them signal in the present moment recession, whereas some others, like you know, jobless claims and credit spreads, are more kind of flagging some caution. So, in some respect, it suggests that you know, a dashboard of risk indicators doesn't paint a, a kind of, I guess, a, an optimistic picture about the short term. And at the same time, you know, you contrast that with, uh, you know, S&P uh, hitting new all-time highs um, throughout the year. Uh, you know, yesterday we had the NVIDIA results, obviously, and, and we have all been monitoring our screens as to what is the consequence of that. Certainly on the upside on the and on the back end of this, I would say debatable a microeconomic environment. They also quote, I believe, that towards the end of last year, the the demand for call options on VIX, certainly uh, quite expensive contractual hedge, um, was at all time high. Uh, so they pose the question that you know in this market environment, uh, that you'd expect some sort of instability, disruption. Um, you know, is it is it the place for trend followers? Um, and then the, you know, I guess the article starts quoting some of the people you mentioned, uh, all of whom, in one way or the other, um, effectively suggest that in this type of environments, uh, trend following works pretty well. Now, at the same time, the most recent experience about 2023 was not the most, I guess, um, positive in this regard performance wise. Uh, last year, I think we all felt this whip. So year. I think Andrew has been quite vocal about that. Uh, and we had some significant turns in the bond yields um, not only the first half, but also towards the end of the year. So it was quite a volatile year for trend-following performance itself, uh, even if, you know, implied levels of all have been dragging lower and lower and lower throughout. Um, so I think it is more about, you know, the report is more about where are we heading now? Is trend-following the vehicle that we should be deploying in that in that environment? And, and it's no surprise that, obviously, um, our friends, as you as you call them, uh, speak in favour of it, um, but there are a few stats with regards to the performance of the sockgen Trend Index that last year didn't have a good year, uh, following one of the best years in in the last thirty years. That's twenty twenty two, and how the asset management, the assets under management for the CTA industry, the managed futures industry, quoting Barclay Hedge here, um, haven't substantially moved in the last ten years. There was a bit of market mark to market gains. Uh, Naturally, right, in, in 2022, um, and some reduction in 2023, but you know the overall trend is relatively flattish through time. Uh, they quote a few people from the industry suggesting that, yes, they were expecting a bit more activity in terms of requests for trend following. And I think the overall, um, I guess the overall paper concludes by saying that, you know, look, in a market that we do not know yet where inflation is going to go, I mean the 3.1 that we had recently was more of a surprise than, than an expectation. But then you get the you know the jobless claims having a, having I guess a, a different effect. So I think it's a mix of macro data points that you know at least suggests some uncertainty about the future. Having said that, with four rate cuts being priced in, one could argue that hey, trend following has helped substantially when rates have been falling historically. So it might be the year. Obviously, there's no conclusion. Nobody has a uh, I guess a crystal ball. Uh, but that's, I think, that's the um, conclusion that I got out of the of the report. 2022 was great. 2023 not very much. So, current state of the market, a bit of a debate as to where we're heading. But equity markets hitting all-time highs month after month. Rate cuts have been priced in. Is that the environment? Maybe, but I don't subscribe to the title at the end. At least myself.
0: Yeah. No. Okay. So. Let's start with the reverse. I I agree with that, uh, as mentioned. I frame it a little bit differently. Whenever people say that 2023 wasn't a great year and she's using the words flop and all of that, I frame it differently. I mean, I think if you have a trend, such trend index that was up 27% in 2022 and it loses just 4% in 2023, to me, that's a pretty good year, actually uh, holding on to uh, performance uh, and so on and so forth. So my framing is different from the very start. The second thing I would say is that I do understand why they want to write these articles and I do understand why they can get people uh, to comment on it but the starting point for me is a little bit um, awkward because you are trying to essentially use some kind of forecast for what the economic environment is going to be like to try and forecast trend following returns. And if there's one thing we all say really uh, when we are asked individually, that is, well, the, you can't forecast our returns. So why even, why even bother? Why even start? And and regardless of what's happening. You know, uh, and and I guess the article came out I don't know a week ago, and suggesting that this year wasn't a a super year. Uh, obviously, the number speaks their own uh, language. The the year so far is is actually quite strong, um, but it's also coming from from markets necessarily that doesn't um, you know that operates much more independently that we've seen for a while. Some of them, of course, we know are the small soft commodities that are on a tear. And so, really nothing to do with whether we are in recession or not. The price of cocoa is going to fly if, if there is a supply problem, right? So, and it keeps on flying, right? So, it's, so I, I just find it interesting that we keep talking about trying to predict the future when the whole premise of, of trend following is you should buy the strategy because it doesn't try to predict anything and it has nothing to do with what you think the economic environment is going to be because you want to have it in your portfolio because it operates differently and it operates independently and it only looks at price and it doesn't try to look anywhere uh, beyond uh, today's price and then whatever has passed happened in the past. So, But of course, uh, the people in the article are super well-respected and I guess the other theme I took from it is just that I guess they're trying to explain that when you have these Transition periods and when there is uncertainty whether we are in an inflationary environment or recessionary environment, that's going to be challenging um, for any strategy really, but including trend following, because the price trend trends change and and therefore the the models have to adjust accordingly. So, yeah, I mean, perfectly fine uh, article. It's just that the the title was, uh, in my opinion, could have been different. And I think you're right. You you touched already on the uh, article that was in the ETF Trends uh, paper that Andrew was part of, um, where they talk about last year being a, a year of, of whip sawing. And I think we've 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 certainly talked about this um, a few times. So let's leave it like that. Now we're going to move into something super hardcore research stuff. It's a paper called "Optimal Trend Following Portfolios" by Sebastian. Uh, Valerie, I think is called. Thereabouts, my French is not necessarily great. Um, and uh, the paper derives an optimal portfolio that is based on trend-following signals. Now, I will be completely uh, open and frank here and say to you, Nick, as soon as I got to page three, I knew that this was for you and not for me to get into because the formulas uh, are pretty hardcore. So... I couldn't be more excited about hearing your explanation of this paper, and uh, I'm sure there's going to be some some interesting things to take away from it. So this paper appeared um, a
1: few months back. Uh, I understand it's published now in the Journal of Investment Strategies, um, and as you say, it talks about obviously trend following portfolios, but it takes a much more theoretical stance, uh, at least in the first part of it. Um, I, I kind of I tried to go through and, and summarize some of my points while maintaining a bit of a high level in, in my explanations. I don't think it's, it's, it's basically for the benefit of, uh, of the Sean and the listeners to go through the, um, the heavy math. So the, goal, you know, the paper goes as follows. It, it effectively says that trend following should not exist in the first place in some respect, it, it, it's basically going against market efficiency. But the fact that it exists in one of the more prevalent empirical features suggests that we should model the range of assets using a, you know, a specific model. I'll come to it in a second. And assuming that this model is the one that explains returns in a world that exhibits trends, how should I optimally design my portfolio, right? So that's, that's how it, 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 it starts. How do I model the universe of assets? If I accept the fact that they exhibit trends and if they do so, how do I solve for a weighting scheme that maximizes my Sharpe ratio, that's, that, that's more or less how the paper is put together from, um, I guess, from a motivation perspective. So they start by saying, well, listen, uh, we have a number of assets, can be equities, can be commodities, a range of markets, we don't even have to name them, Um, and their return process would have some drift, like equities typically go up because that's a reward for taking on downside risk. For instance, um, they would have some noise as any return stream would have, so unpredictable uh, component. But then importantly, there's what they call a stochastic trend. In other words, occasionally, markets exhibit trends, which is you know, inducing serial correlation in the return pattern, right? So by putting together the drift and this stochastic trend, they argue that not only are we rewarded for holding explicit exposures in markets that are risky, but at the same time, There are some trends that come and go that occasionally i can capture if i monitor the historical return that's that's more or less how how they put it forward right how he puts it forward Um, so there are two important um stylized facts that are mapped in that uh framing of the model number one the serial correlation so the momentum and the trend following activity but importantly there are cross correlations between trends in other words When some of the equities are trending, maybe some commodities are trending because there's some sort of interlinks in their fundamental modeling. So they try to incorporate also those cross-correlations between markets and the cross-correlations of trends alongside the single asset serial correlation, right? So these are, again, some of the stylized facts that have been captured by this this modeling. Given that model, here's the question. How do I allocate between the markets, assuming that I follow a trend-following signal? And what they end up with, what he ends up with, is a, uh, you know, given a number of assumptions, um, you end up with four different portfolios, whereby optimally you hold a linear combination of those four portfolios. So what are those four portfolios? They start by bringing some assumptions to solve the model because it's, to your point, quite complicated. And they say, well, number one, let's assume, so all the features that were put into the model are now stressed. Let's assume that there is no autocorrelation. Well, if you have then a market that doesn't have any autocorrelation, well, the optimal portfolio to hold is the one that is effectively a mean variance portfolio. Right? So you follow the expected return, you go long or short on the base of that expected return, which under some assumptions is also the most diversified portfolio. Or under some assumptions is the risk parity portfolio. Again, a few little details here, but The point is, if I have no information about trend following, all I'm going to do is allocate my risk in a balanced manner. Assumption number two. So that's the first portfolio, right? Assumption number two. What if I don't have drifts? What if I'm not rewarded for holding equities? What if I'm not rewarded for holding bonds? But I have trend following activity, right? So from this modeling exercise, those two components that were introduced, I'm now left with this this, this stochastic trend. Well, if that is the case, then what you have to do is build a mean variance portfolio that is following trends. Right? So, conversely to the first one that is following longer term invariance with drifts, it does trend following with tre- uh, mean variance with trends. That's portfolio number two. Portfolio number three more details here and more assumptions. I'm going to kind of keep them on the side. You end up getting with what they call the agnostic risk parity portfolio. This is a portfolio that initially, um, was presented in academic literature by the CFM crew in Paris. Uh, the agnostic risk party portfolio says, but any universe of assets um, has principal components, or what you call technically uh, the eigenvectors. So how can I deploy my weights so that I'm equally exposed in all principal components? It's almost like equalish contribution, but instead of looking into the, um, the assets, you look into the principal components. So that's another solution of their model. And the last solution of their model is to do the closest to our businesses. You do trend following using a risk parity mechanism, some sort of inverse scaling or covariance scaling of trend following positions, right? So to summarize, there are four portfolios that are sub components or sub solutions of their generic model, those being mean variants using drifts. So that's more like what they call risk parity, long only mean variance using trends, the agnostic risk parity that you allocate across the principal components, and the trend-following risk parity. Of all these, then they introduce some uh, of our classical cross-asset futures universes. They deploy those four portfolios into this universe. They do a backtest uh, for the last 20-30 like, years, um, and they come up with some realized sharp ratios. The better ones out of those four are the agnostic risk parity that solves for the principal components, and in all fairness, it's not too surprising in some respect. If the asset classes are capturing different principal components of risk, you're well diversified if you, you know, if you diversify across those principal components, uh, as well as the trend-following risk parity portfolio, and optimally a combination of the two seems to suggest that you have your optimal trend-following portfolio. At the end, they add a bit of long-only risk parity, but I think the gist of it is that whether you go through this route of I guess of, of of modeling and solving mathematically uh, a complicated model or whether empirically we have found that some form of inverse risk inverse, inverse risk or inverse correlation allocation between markets uh, in the trend following space gives you I guess the better results over the longer term so I guess to summarize it's an interesting paper because somehow it brings value to some of our At times, heuristics, Um, but boy, it's full of math.
0: (laughs) Yes, I can attest to that part, that's for sure. Okay, well, I appreciate that, and uh, thanks for sending over the paper, Sebastian. Let's move on to another paper that I was only sent by you today, I think. So, I have not read it myself, but I know the author... Because I'm speaking to him right now, at least one of the authors. <laughs> there were two authors yeah. of the paper. The paper is called Pick Your Battles and the Challenges of Factor Timing, written in 2019, I believe it was. So um, tell us a little bit about that and maybe how it relates to what we've just been talking uh, about.
1: So, you know, why did I pick this, this work we did five years ago? Um, That was with one of my colleagues at the time. Um, She's now at Oxford University, finishing her PhD. Um, what's, What's the background? The background is that recently, and I would say, I guess in the last month or two, I've been receiving, it might be just a coincidence, right? But I'm receiving more questions around timing. And that is not timing just for trend following purposes or for the market itself, I think it's more generic. I built a portfolio of systematic strategies, can I have dynamic tilts? Um, is that the right time for trend following? I think that is exactly what we discussed earlier on with Aris.net, right? and the fact that we cannot uh, foresee the future. When you look into alternative markets and we might discuss that a bit later on if we have time um, you know, alternative commodities have had an incredibly strong uh, year so far but also the last six months have been extremely strong and that is not just cocoa and coffee. Uh, there's a broad spectrum of commodities that have done very very strongly from trend following uh, perspective and we get questions along the lines. Well, look at that! Now, the performance has been uh, astronomical. Is it going to continue? And, and really, the answer is I don't know. So somehow, you know, I guess also looking for good topics to discuss. Uh, you know, I thought of bringing that over, uh, even if it's like a five-year-old. Uh, I think the shelf life uh, suggests that it's still relevant, because at the time we wrote this report, um, and we approached the problem of timing in the following sense. Um, so timing. I think principal is about getting the direction right. And as a secondary factor is about sizing it appropriately. So the way we approached it uh, is in the following sense. We said, you know what, let's just make it easy, but let's just try to follow timing from a more theoretical standpoint. So let's assume that we play a game and you're only having two choices. You're either gonna go long or short, no sizing. And the underlying strategy, it can be an asset like S&P, it can be a strategy like trend following, it can be, I don't know, any, any, any asset we can go long or short, uh, just to simplify the, um, I guess, the exposition of, of the analysis. So you can only go long or short, and then let's assume we have perfect foresight, right? So we have a distribution of returns, let's call it normal for the sake of argument. So if we can get any negative return as positive because we're going to short exactly before you know, the negative return arises, then we have you know, a perfect foresight and we can solve mathematically for what is the expected return if we get everything right. Okay? That's point number one. Point number two is that getting everything right suggests that the increasedness of our ratio we're getting is going to be lower and lower and lower the better the strategy is in the first place. So if I tell you to time a coin toss, well, the best thing you can have is always win. So that is going to get your sharp ratio from zero to something very positive. But if I give you a strategy that has a sharp ratio of three, there's not too many negatives to turn positive, right? So the sharp is not going to increase that much. So you have some nice mathematical analysis that suggests that the higher the sharp ratio of the strategy you try to time, the lower the incremental value you bring however good you are, and we're talking about perfect foresight, right? And why is that, as the first example, extremely important? Because I think there's a misconception in the market that if I'm 50.1% right, I'm bringing value. And the answer is no. If you're timing a coin toss, probably, but if you're timing a strategy with, I don't know, a sharp price of one, you're actually destroying value, more likely than not. So we wanted to bring it up as a, I guess, as a, as a nice statistical analysis that, you should benchmark yourself and your skill with the skill of the strategy itself to perform without you touching it, because if it gives you a positive return more often than not, you'd rather just pick your fights. That's why the, you know the paper is called pick, pick your fights right pick your battles uh, so that was the first thing that we kind of try to do to basically say, well, what is the you know in a, in a perfect foresight world, what is the incremental sharp ratio you can bring and that is you know that is extremely. Uh, related with how well it is as in the strategy on a buy and hold base in the first place. Even more so the frequency of you doing or calling the direction is very important. Would you do it per annum? Per month? Or per day? Because if, if, you know, if it's a high sharp ratio for a strategy you rebalance annually you get something wrong it's not going to look good. But that high sharp ratio on a daily basis is very small right? because you have to scale it down and getting every single day right, it's going to massively explode your sharp ratio. I mean, I can put some numbers here because I can, I, can, I, can, I can look it up here, right? Assume you have a sharp ratio of one, annualized. Okay? So if you get every single year correctly for a sharp ratio of one and assuming normal distribution, you go to 1.45. So incremental, one goes to 1.45. That's it. The same strategy on a monthly basis has a sharp of 0.3, right? Because you have to divide by square root of 12. So this 0.3, if you get every single month correctly, you'll be annualizing 4.6 sharp. It skyrockets. On a daily basis, the sharp is 0.06. Tiny, right? Because you need to divide by a square root of 252. But if you get every single day right, and again, the numbers now start not making sense, you make a, a sharp of 20.80. So the point that we wanted to make is that number one, Pick your fights, but also pick the frequency as a function of your trading costs. And I think it's very important to put that into context, but also frame the problem of timing, not just in isolation, but in the context of the strategy you're trying to, to, to time, right? Then one step further goes as follows. Well, we never, never have perfect foresight, right? Look, like at the margin, we might claim to have a bit of a for, of foresight based on economic regimes or, you know, whatever, forecasting models and so on. So we twisted then the question and we said, you know what, we don't have to reflect foresight. The question is, what is the skill you need to have to outperform? Now, to solve for that, I'll go into a bit of a detail, but not too much of it. We just discussed about the best case scenario. What's the worst case scenario? That you get everything wrong, right? So, a level of skill, let's call it 60%, will give you an average return, which is the average of those two extremes. 60% of the good, 40% of the bad, okay? So then you can mathematically solve now what should be that probability, that skill that I have to make that combination of extremes better on average than me holding the strategy. So you can reverse engineer the math and find the skill that you require to outperform. And it's no surprise that the skill you require increases with how good the sharp ratio is. Right? And, and also with the frequency. In other words, the lower the frequency, the lower the skill you require, sorry, the higher the frequency, the lower the skill. So if you do daily, it's okay if you lose a bit in a few days, if your skill is good enough, right? The problem is costs. That, that's the problem. Then we expanded the analysis and we went to distributions with tails. So if you sell volatility, for instance, you typically get good curry, but occasionally you get crushed. Now, what's the timing skill here? Well, the reality is if the strategy itself has like a 70% hit ratio you really, really have to be extremely good to pick those down points. And statistically speaking, we're a lot of analysis and simulations. It's basically unattainable. It's almost as if you're saying I'm going to predict the five equity crashes. Like it goes beyond realistic levels of skill, uh, to, to, to be able to time those, those down moves. Um, so I think overall, that was kind of the first part of the analysis you know, looking into a single strategy or a single market and try to assess what is the skill we require to improve the performance and creating handicap for us or highlighting the handicap being the buy and hold sharp ratio. So if somebody says I'm going to time trend following, well the first statistical point that I would want to bring is that, listen, if that is realizing over the longer term, obviously things are becoming more conditional if you want to really think about it, um, you know, based on the economic environment. But anyway, A sharp of one for instance that will require a good amount of skill to marginally improve the sharp ratio. So I think statistically speaking the better the strategy the more you should let it let it it roll on it on its own right because you know a false positive is going to cost you and that that's what we wanted to bring forward right because we wanted to go against this 50% chance. Later on we've done a bit more of analysis by the way all that analysis relates to trend following as well because in trend following You need to get the direction right. And then obviously, sizing is an important consideration, but you need to get the direction right. Markets that more often than not go up in principle can penalize your, I guess, your conviction to go short, for instance. And I think it's an important consideration. That's the first part. Should I pose any questions or should I just give it quickly? Um, What's the second part?
0: Give us quickly the second part. I have a. a, a I think a question for you afterwards.
1: I'll tell you. So the the second part goes into a portfolio. So if you hold a portfolio of, I don't know, five strategies or five CTA managers, whatever, right? Uh, Everyone has their own portfolio to manage. For the sake of argument, let's assume that the correlations between all of them are equal. The sharp ratios are equal. How can you time this portfolio? Well, in principle, you would want to say, well, you know what? Out of the five strategies I hold, I'm going to overweight that particular one that I feel is going to bring me more value and naturally reduce all the rest. So I'm going to bring some conviction that is going to be reflected using an active weight. What you find, and there's a lot of little analysis somebody can do with regards to the sharp ratio of the strategies, the forecasting skill, the correlation, what you find is that a, and I think that was the most interesting result out of all, a universe that is extremely diversifying in itself gets little value from timing due to the diversification minimizing the impact, diluting the impact of timing. At the same time, too little diversification and too high correlation also has no value when it comes to timing, because if things are very correlated, trying to bring any active weight, however good your active skill might be, is not going to move the needle. It's only going to add costs. So in some respect, you need lower level of sharp ratios at the individual level of strategies, going back to my previous point, as well as relatively moderate correlations. Not too high, not too little. So if I take two examples that we also have in that report, if you look into equity factors, equity factors are relatively low sharp ratio strategies, but they also happen to have relatively moderate correlations. So timing that, in some respect might or creating active deals might be easier than having a set of volatility carry portfolios or volatility carry strategies that tend to suffer occasionally but have a very high sharp ratio and relatively high level of correlation among them. So this is the focus of that work and I think I wanted to kind of bring it back and say listen timing is hard and it's not just hard empirically Statistically speaking, it's hard. And there are reasons why some strategies with high sharp ratios should be left as they are um, and, and, and avoid the temptation unless somehow the market environment or your confidence um, goes beyond those, uh, those thresholds. So pick your battles. That's the title.
0: Okay, so my, I guess my question is, we, we know that trend following is not necessarily known for it. the higher sharp uh, ratio. And, and, and frankly, that's probably not why you should buy it in the first place. But just from your own uh, overall experience uh, and given everything you know, everything you have talked about here, do you think there's any merit in trying to time an investment into trend following? I don't mean as a trend follower. I mean an investor looking at trend following managers. Do you, do you think there is that? And I, I just anecdotally just say that our founder, Bill Don. When asked, you know, this question, he would always say, "Well, the best time to invest in trend following is at the bottom of a drawdown. The second best time is today."
1: I would say today, if that was your that was your 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 question. So, um, I'm halfway there. Is there a way to time it? Very, very hard. And I think part of the reason why it's hard is because you do get directional exposures. So, can we time equities? I'm not sure. Can we time treasuries? Maybe. In some respect if you assume that the central banks are a bit more serially correlated. Can we time currencies? Not really. They, sometimes they go hand in hand with some global growth and the strength of the dollar. Can we time commodities? I don't know. Uh, it's hard right? So in some respect the fact that we don't build cross-sectional portfolios but rather we build directional portfolios Timing trend—if you were to break it down—suggests that you somehow can time the underlying beta markets, which themselves, if anything, definitely equities and rates embed the more fundam- the most fundamental risk premium, right—the the time value of money, and 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 the and the growth risk, uh, respectively. So don't think timing is easy, uh, and I think that's the because um, the fundamental reasoning behind, in 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 my view. Um, now, it's not like value, for instance, right, which is purely cross-sectional, and somehow you can make the argument, look, the spread is very wide, maybe the opportunity set is better, maybe now it's a better time to get into it, or you know, sometimes you look into implied volatilities that are you know, quite extreme, that's a good entry point, maybe it will be a bit costly, maybe, but historically you do get some sort of statistical confidence you know, from the short term. I, I just cannot see how on a directional basis somebody can argue that, you know, can time uh, trend. Successfully so, I think we've discussed in the past the possibility of reducing some of the risk when you observe too many trends across the bro- across the board, and I think this is when the risks in the portfolio become more concentrated. But that's just a moderation in the top, top uh, in the top level of all. Uh But timing it is very hard. I'll, I'll give one snippet of analysis we've done. If there are no trends, what do you do? So assume you count your models, you count your you know you. You measure your trendiness across the markets and you end up building a portfolio. But at the core, it has no trends. So in principle, you say, you know what? I'm going to stay out. Statistically speaking, you're losing the start of a trend. You're missing it. So you're out underperforming if you were to not deploy exposures when some trends are not explicit, but they start forming. Uh, so not even in that case environment, in sorry, in that case, statistically speaking, it makes sense um To stay out. I think it's hard.
0: I just genuinely think it's hard. I don't think anyone at the end of December last year would have thought that, oh yeah, Q4 2024 is going to be fantastic. I mean, there's no sign. There was no sign of that. And we've seen it so many times. I mean, we did not know two years ago that you know, things would explode given uh, return of inflation, return, you know, a a war breaking out and and so on and so forth. So, but I do agree with you, Nick, that I am also discussing a lot this thing about timing because then people say, oh, well, we just had a good run in trend following, so maybe we should wait or, ah, I don't think there's going to be a lot of trends uh, in the next six months, so I'm going to wait for, with investing. And it, to me, just uh, completely, as we talked about earlier, it's completely... The wrong way of looking at this particular strategy, but I don't. I'm not going to beat that uh, drum anymore because we only have a few minutes left, and I do want it just to, because there is a one other topic in particular that I get a lot of um, exposure to in my travels, and and it's in and it's this question about whether trading hundreds of markets, including alternative markets, versus more sort of uh, let's call it. Classical developed markets, um, whether one is better than the other. I do sense from the conversations that I have that I think a lot of investors have a bias towards the narrative that suggests that alternative having alternative markets in the portfolio is better. Uh, I will say from my conversations with some of my friends in the industry um, I think that they would say that it's not so much whether they are... I think they make a distinction about whether they are alternative but still fairly liquid or whether they are alternative and hard to trade. And maybe they do find some interesting properties in markets that are, are actually operationally hard that, that maybe and And of course, therefore, there would be fewer people trading them. Uh, maybe that makes a difference... I unfortunately sound like a bro- broken record uh, often when I say to people that as much as that can be true in a given year, maybe even even over a two-year period, in the very long run, uh, if I look at the well-established managers that's been around for a long time, many of them part of the mini CTA series that Alan and I did last year, the long-term returns doesn't strike me as they support uh, that view uh, that those managers who have alternative markets in the portfolio have done better in the last decade. I just don't see that. But I do recognize that they are different, uh, of course, and will perform differently at different times. Um, anyway, I just wanted... And also, I did pick up... And I, it's not that I want to make it a conversation about Chinese markets per se, um, but I did see some headlines, and I know it may not be relevant for CTAs, but I did see some headlines this week about China cracking down on certain hedge funds because they had been too active on the sell side uh, of Chinese equities, which brings me back to this point about you know what are the risks of going into some of these countries to get that alternative exposure? Um, you know, can we completely ignore that? But that's a slightly different you know conversation. Maybe, what are your thoughts? So, from a pure statistical perspective, uh, you know, the marginal gain you
1: gain from a regional market drops. You know, once you have X in place, um, and then once you have that, then the X plus one and the X plus two marginally uh, reduces um, the contribution it can bring, let alone the costs. So I think expanding a universe with uh, more markets, quote unquote, alternative or exotic or however you want to call them, uh, I think it's a consideration between marginal gain versus cost. And to your point, whether it's illiquid or harder to get hold of, or you, know, you need a non broker. Whatever the complexities of access can be, uh, certainly increase the the hurdle. Maybe a component of a program that only isolates positions in those markets could have some value add. Um, and I would look at it more as a satellite component that can be added on top of a core markets uh, allocation. And frankly, I mean, I've been, let's call it, convinced uh, in some respect that some of the alternative commodity markets um, have... Uh, value to bring in a trend-following portfolio. Partly because you know we see some of the more kind of benchmark-oriented markets um, not necessarily bringing too much except for occasional uh, spikes like in, uh, in the first quarter of 2022. Uh, I think trend-following in classical commodity markets has not necessarily had the best 10 years. Uh, I think post-2010, 2011, 2012 uh, has been less so of the outperformance within the cross asset uh, part. Um, but markets that sit outside of the of the benchmark in some respect because we're talking about the commodities which in their family are quite idiosyncratic even among them um, there is more there's more diversification between them and I think there is more producer consumer dynamics rather than speculator dynamics that can allow some of the trends to last for longer um and I think you know if we look into cocoa that that's been in the news, or 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 uh, robusta coffee, or how Natcast to your point, and and winter um, being one of the warmest winters we've had, I think it's been the warmest winter on the record so far uh, in the northern hemisphere. Uh, I think there are some sort of fundamental reasons um, why we observe those trends, and those trends are quite sustained. And I guess when we when we know when we talk about what drives trends, right? You take a not one step back, a hundred steps back. Uh, that's how we all started. One of the reasons that we bring forward is that there are market uh, structures that can make specific demand for a particular market or supply, um, I guess, create serial correlation in the returns. Um, This can be efficiently captured, right? And I think in those markets, you do observe those dynamics. I can take um, cocoa, right, and and, the fact that we know, we know and we observe and we document at the present moment how constrained the supply is. Now, the growing conditions are poor, the shipping disruptions. We know that the supply constraints would be there. So some of the trends we're seeing that actually continue until now, as we speak, could be driven by that. And I think there's value in those, but there has to be product portfolio construction and sizing. That's my view. I'm, I'm, I'm a believer of those markets.
0: Yes. And and and, and maybe I, I get the sense that perhaps you and I think of alternative markets slightly differently. For sure. Maybe For sure. you include some markets that I actually don't think are alternative anymore, like Cocoa. I think that's a perfectly Liquid classic, uh, well, I say liquid, but it's 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 a classical market that's been in trend portfolios for 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 decades. Um, but of course, there are some contracts, um, and and some of them are even hard to pronounce. That are uh, clearly alternative and so on and so forth. But I think it's a very balanced view. And I actually think if you were a investor that had to pick, uh, say, four or five different trend followers, because that's probably still prudent if you have a large amount of capital to choose then of course you would, at least in my opinion, you would choose managers that are structurally different. They all have to have certain base criterias that they live up to in terms of quality and all of that stuff. But clearly there's a structural difference between picking a manager trading three or 400 markets and picking a manager to trade 75 markets on top of different types of trend models, different type of risk management, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's room for everyone. I think that's the good news here. Um, there are risks and rewards, uh, I guess, with, with all of these choices. But commodities in general, if 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 we are referring to them as the most alternative markets we can find, um, are wonderful. I mean, cocoa is up 136% in the last uh, 12 months and natural gas is down 51%. I mean, What's not to like for a trend follower uh, in in those markets? So yeah, I mean it's a conversation that's going to continue without a doubt. But at the end of the day, it's the performance numbers that will essentially give us the evidence uh, whether one is better than the other, uh, even though it might be driven by narratives uh, right now. Um, so yeah, interesting. I mean, I'll I'll, I'll leave you with one
1: one final statistic, which I find uh, astonishing. Um, I think today is the 40th uh business day of the year. Or you can call it, you know, 39th or something. And if you take out uh, some of the holidays here and there, 38th, doesn't really matter. But you know, give or take, we, we've had like a eight weeks since the beginning of the year. Now one of our one of our uh, trend following strategies is the one that is focusing on, on some of those commodity markets we we discuss. Um it's been having like a stellar year, um, no surprises. I think it has had out of those 40. Days eight with a negative return. Now, we, obviously, this is not a <laughs> this is not a reasonable statistic in itself. Uh, but this is partly like testament of of the strong performance of those markets uh, as of as of today. But even more so, this is when some of the questions arise as to should I get in or should I wait? And my point is like, listen, statistically speaking, let's look at the data. Past return at the strategy level does not predict future return. Statistically speaking. So then let's look into the markets. Are there structural reasons to believe that those markets that are driving performance are going to crash? So it's one thing to go sideways, it's another thing to crash. And I think that's how we should be looking into those questions quantitatively, but also qualitatively in some respect and, and, and finding the reasoning behind why those trends exist and whether there is reason for them to continue existing. Right? Uh, but lastly, I agree with you. I think our definitions are not necessarily 100% compatible purely because we would have to... I guess, draw a line uh, at the point that liquidity becomes too little, but not too little to trade for the managers, but for us building indices on the back end of those markets, we have to make sure we guarantee um, you know, the close and all that lot. So certainly there's a difference in the definition here, but I think the principles are the same.
0: Yes, and, and 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 in fairness, and to be balanced about this, I mean, I don't know this for a fact, but it could well be that if you looked at the last 40 days of trading, and you look at your equity sector, that that might also actually have been up most of those 40 days, right? So so this is the wonderful thing about trend following, that we have these very strong trends that captures a sector. In 2022, it was like bonds. I mean, for days and weeks and months, you almost made money, you know, uh, every day. I wouldn't say every day, but it was so consistent, right? And And then you have periods where it's equities. And then, as you say, we have... Here, it's right now, where it seems to be uh, in the commodity space, and and that is just the wonderful nature of us being allowed to play in a sandbox that is much bigger than what traditional portfolios can offer. Hence, this is why we deliver return streams that are different, and uh, in in and and on top of that, actually are incredibly complementary to the uh, traditional uh, portfolio. So. Although you should be careful saying it's a win-win-win, but it is a pretty compelling opportunity. Nick, it was also very compelling to speak to you today. Uh, as always, I, I really, really appreciate uh, you and, and your time, uh, as I'm sure all our listeners do. And one way of showing Nick how much you appreciate that is to go and find your podcast platform of choice, Leave a rating and review. Tell the world how great Nick is on these uh, episodes because it really greatly helps uh, us and it shows appreciation for the hard work that all the co-hosts do every uh, week. Next week, another uh, wonderful person is on the show, uh, Jem, and if you have some questions for him probably more in the volatility or global macro space, um, send them over in for top and I'll make sure I'll tackle those uh, with a uh, gem. From Nick and me, thanks ever so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. And until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other.